Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Good morning. It's 830. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, a new study of census data shows Mississippi is the only state where child poverty has increased. Looking at the numbers for, say, Mississippi may not tell us the entire story, the way that looking at different kinds of places within Mississippi can tell us. So we often see that poverty is highest in cities and rural places and often lower in suburbs. Then more transparency could be on its way for Mississippi's campaign finance system. Later, a health minute with Dr. Rick DeShazo on diet pills. And continuing our profile of all 15 Mississippi community colleges, today it's Kapiat Lincoln Community College. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. More children in Mississippi are living in poverty. That's according to a new study of data released by the Carsey School of Public Policy at the University of New Hampshire. The report combined information from the census and the American Community Survey, which is also conducted by the Census Bureau. According to the data, Mississippi is the only state where child poverty has increased. We spoke with Jessica Carson, one of the authors of the survey. She says child poverty in Mississippi is higher in inner cities and rural areas areas than it is in suburbs. This study is based on data from the U.S. Census Bureau, and they collect these data through the American Community Survey, which is a household-based survey instrument. Mississippi is the only state in the country that saw an increase in child poverty since 2014. That's correct. You have it broken down into three categories, or at least locations, rural suburban city. Can you talk about those designations and what they mean in regard to poverty? Sure. So in this study, we looked at three different what we call place types, rural, suburban, and city places. And we use those designations based on whether a place falls within or outside of a metropolitan statistical area. So in this study, we use these designations because we find that there's important variation by place type even within a state. So, for example, looking at the numbers for, say, Mississippi may not tell us the entire story, the way that looking at different kinds of places within Mississippi can tell us. Um, So we often see that poverty is highest in cities and rural places and often lower in suburbs. Um, And that's also the case in Mississippi as well. In Mississippi, does Jackson, the capital of Mississippi, skew the results in terms of cities? It's certainly possible that any large city can account for um, a a large amount of the the inner city uh, poverty rate. So It could certainly be driven by rates in a large city like Jackson. Of course, much of Mississippi is rural, and we find poverty in those areas. I would say from others I've spoken to, it's because of lack of access to health care, good schools, lack of jobs or transportation. What are the criteria you use to determine levels of poverty? 
Sure. I think you've certainly highlighted a number of very important factors when it comes to thinking about the issues of access that people in poverty face. For this study, we used the official poverty measure, which is simply uh, uh, takes the family's income and compares it to a specified threshold. So if a family's income is above that threshold, then they're considered not poor. If their family income is below that threshold, then they're considered in poverty. So it's a very simplistic way of looking at, at poverty. It is the official measure, so that's the one that we use here. However, um, we've increasingly seen researchers like ourselves and in other places looking at more encompassing ways of thinking about poverty that can account for differences like cost of living or uh, the amount of money that a family has to spend on certain goods and services to think about um, the role that certain federal safety net programs play, like tax credits or food stamps, to really come at our understanding of poverty in a more holistic way. In Mississippi, for example, the cost of living tends to be uh, one among the lowest. So uh, according to data from the Missouri Economic Research and Information Center, Mississippi has the lowest cost of living of any state, and that's driven by low housing costs. So relatedly, we may find that incomes are relatively low in Mississippi, which the poverty, uh, federal poverty line doesn't adjust for that. So if incomes are on the lower side because the cost of living is on the lower side, then we may see that Mississippi's poverty rates look relatively high compared to other places in the nation. As has been already established, Mississippi is the only state that saw an increase in child poverty. How much of an increase? So the one-year increase in Mississippi was was almost two percentage points, 1.9 percentage points. We do encourage folks to not put um, too much stock in a single data point, to really look at the trend over time, and that gives us a much better picture of how a state is faring, especially since we're talking about data that are collected through a survey. The majority of the states, you can tell me how many, stayed the same. Yeah, by and large, the states across the nation had a stable poverty rate, so that was the case for uh, 37 of the states that we that we looked at here in Mississippi was the only one with the increase. How many states saw a decrease? 13 states. We try to caution folks to not put too much stock in a a single data point's increase or decrease due to sampling error. A a small state like New Hampshire, where I'm from, um, if we have a a large decrease in one year, that could be driven by some of the the survey noise in the the data that are collected. You do this report annually, or is this the first report done? We do this annually, yep. And and is this the first year, 2015, compared to 2014? So we've done this report. um, I've been a part of it back to 2010, and we've always compared to the previous year and also looked at some pre- and post-recession comparisons. Jessica Carson is the author and the Vulnerable Families Research Scientist for the Carsey School of Public Policy with the University of New Hampshire. Jessica, thank you very much for the information. Thank you very much for having me, Karen. Up next, more transparency could be on its way for Mississippi campaign finance system. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Jeremy Hobson. The 80s live on on sunny radio thanks to a husband and wife duo who started a radio station in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. We've had a whole lot of fun doing something, marching to the beat of our own drum and making listeners happy all along the way. That's next time on Here and Now. Today at noon on MPB Think Radio. Support for Mississippi Public Broadcasting comes from the Delta Entrepreneurship Network.
hosting the Delta Challenge Pitch Competition September 29th at the University of Mississippi. Information and registration at dra.gov slash entrepreneur. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Mississippi is the last state in the nation to allow electronic filing of campaign finance reports. That's according to the National Institute on Money in State Politics. Now that has changed, but not entirely. Secretary of State Delbert Hoseman unveiled Tuesday a new online system for political candidates to report their finances. The new system will allow individuals to search through records by candidate, political committee, expenditures, or contributions. Electronic filing system is currently voluntary, though. Hoseman tells MPB's Paul Boger he will push lawmakers to make online filing mandatory by 2020. We thought it was important for people to be able to see quicker and more electronically what the contributions are. Every candidate has been filing, showing what their income and expenditures are for any contribution over $200. We have all of that. It's all on paper, but it's not linked together. So you can't tell if Delbert Hoseman contributed to Phil Bryant, for example. You'd have to look at Phil Bryant's and Delbert Hoseman's things. Uh, reports. So the reports are all on the line already, but what we wanted to do is make them more transparent where people could easier look at things that may have an interest to them. So we broke it down by by statewide office, we broke it down by judicial candidate, we broke it down by contributor, so you can look one contributor, you can see how many people contributed all the way across the board. We broke it down, enough political action committees are on there, expenditures, you can look at expenditures and see who used uh, a particular ad agency or whatever. All of those are broken down for transparency and you can compare between candidates. That's the newest thing I think here. And it's taken us a while to develop that. It's expensive and time consuming to do something that will cross check literally thousands of these forms that we receive every year. So we're up in business. I guess the the judicial ones, the first reports are due in a couple of days. We're hopeful they'll use them. Uh, We want all the statewide to use them. We've set up a room in my Ladner building, and we're inviting all the members of the legislature to come over when their reports are due in January, and we'll help them use them the first time. And we're hopeful that we'll, we'll, we'll get forward to where we have a majority. Uh, we are going to propose to the legislature this year that uh, all filings be electronic by 2020, which would be the next election for governor, lieutenant governor, whatever. How is this digital process different from the current one? You mentioned that you, this will be easier to search, but how is it actually different? Well, it's different because right now all you get, if you look up Delbert Hoseman or Friends of Delbert Hoseman, you'll see my campaign reports on there. But if you then wanted to check that against Phil Bryant's, there's no collectivity. There's no way to to really check between the two of them for who made contributions, what expenditures there were, all of those different kinds of things. So you'll see the – you'll be able to search what you in in the media said, search for particular things like uh, Friends of Delbert Hoseman Political Action Committee, who they support. And so if you wanted to see how many members of the legislature or how many others they support, you could go look at that and see that. So you can search a whole number of different ways by contributions, expenditures, uh, all kinds of different ways through this system. It's um, much like a Google search or, or a Yahoo search or whatever. But currently, it, you know, it's, it's all done through paperwork. It so is. it's it is just a form that candidates fill out or politicians fall out? That's right. Right now you just file the whole form, and you can go see. You can look at 
friends of Delbert Hoseman, you'll see every expense that I've got and every, uh, every income and who contributed to me above $200. You'll see every bit of that now. But this allows you to, con- to search between candidates and search between offices. You can also look at one office and see how much contributions there are to everybody that's running for Secretary of State, for example. So there, it's a lot of search capabilities that accelerates the ability of the public and the press, who represent the public, for them to be able to get to this information quicker. Over the last year, there's been increased questions about campaign filings, whether it's the contributions or the donations. How do you foresee this uh, increasing accountability? First of all, I think it'll be easier to read. Uh, With all due respect, uh, those of us um, that may scribble more than we need, a lot of times you can't tell what's on there. I mean, who was that? So I think now we'll have it'll be more accurate. I think it'll be quicker for you to be able to look at and tell who actually did this. I mean, it'll be typed out for you. So I think the forms will be more complete and more accurate and more easy to read. Then, obviously, this ability to search, where you can look in and see if you gave money to two candidates or who gave money for this or whether George Soros or whomever is involved, the Koch brothers or whomever they talk about all the time, uh, are involved in different areas. You can look down there and see it. So I think it's a transparency thing, and I think it's an accuracy thing. Last session, you pushed pretty hard for campaign finance reform. That died in the in the final days of the session. Most specifically, you pushed for itemization of credit cards. Right now, candidates don't have to do that. Is that something you're going to push for again next session? Absolutely. How do you foresee that happening? You know, how do you how are you going to push for it? Just like we do everything else, we we have a meeting coming this week with our. Uh, Circuit clerks, about six of them are coming, about six or eight election commissioners, um, representatives of both political parties. Uh, Next week we'll be in this room, and we'll be sitting down discussing about the election reform package. At that point in time, I want to get everyone to agree that it's time to disclose uh, credit cards. And so out of that group, which will give us the election commissioners, the uh, circuit clerks, the Secretary of State, you know, various parties will all be for that. That's the first thing you do is you, you get your coalition right. So we'll get our coalition right to do that. Then we'll go to the legislature and we'll ask them to make a common sense decision. Last year when it was killed, right at the end of the session, remember we had a 120 to zero vote and a 50 to zero vote, and we still don't have a law. We didn't have anybody vote against this, and I still don't have a law. So um, I'm thinking that left a bad taste in their mouth, and I'm hoping that we won't let the campaign finance reform got lumped into this, you know, in the Senate. Much stricter campaign finance. When it got to the House, they fought about it and wouldn't let it out. And when it went back to the Senate, bifurcated with two different bills, the Senate killed it. So I'm hopeful that those gyrations at the end of the session and the last hours of the session will be fought out early in the session, and we can put this behind us. Most Mississippians want, want common sense campaign finance information, and they deserve it. MPB's Paul Boger with Secretary of State Delbert Hoseman on a new online campaign finance reporting system unveiled yesterday. Up next, a health minute with Dr. Rick DeShazo on diet pills. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Coming up this week on MPB's At Issue, texting and driving. It's a problem across the nation. Has the cell phone below the windows, which makes it even worse because you're having to look down. Traffic crashes are causing thousands of deaths. That could cost not just your life, but anyone else's life. Mississippi has a law banning texting and driving, but is the law working? Are your officers writing tickets for texting and driving? No. We take a closer look at texting and driving on At Issue this Friday at 7.30 p.m. on MPB TV. The Health Minute is underwritten by Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Mississippi. 
Information on how to make good health a family affair is available at bcbsms.com. Live healthy, live blue. Hi, I'm Dr. Rick DeShazo, Professor of Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, and this is a Southern Remedy Health Minute. One of the most common things I'm asked by folks I see in the clinic is, may I have a pill to help me with weight loss? And there are a lot of them out there right now. Orlistat is one that is commonly used. It's even over-the-counter in some cases, and it causes you not to absorb fat. Unfortunately, cramps, oily stools, and a lot of gas are the major side effects, so most people won't tolerate that. Lorcasin, L-O-R-C-A-S-E-R-I-N, is also available, and it has a lot of drug interactions, and the amount of weight loss with it, like all of the others, is a very small amount, so I don't recommend that. Bupropion and naltrexone are also used, and the one that is the most effective and causes the most weight loss is a combination of fentermine and topiramate, and that has been approved since 2012, it can jack your blood pressure up because of the fentermine, a stimulant medication, and you can have side effects from the topramate component, which is an anti-seizure, anti-migraine medication. So if you're going to make a decision, then that is probably the best combination if you don't have diabetes. Now, there is a diabetes medicine called liraglutide, L-I-R-A-G-L-U-T-I-D-E, that is associated with weight loss and has recently been approved in a higher dose for obesity medication for patients with and without diabetes. It's probably the safest of all of them and perhaps the most effective. But remember, even with the best of these drugs, you're talking about 5 or 10 pounds of weight loss max. The only way to get a handle around this is to decrease your calorie intake by staying away from high-carbohydrate, high-fat foods, and exercising to keep your metabolic rate up. For more health tips and medical information, listen for Southern Remedy each weekday at 11, where the doctors are always in. For MPB Think Radio, I'm Dr. Rick DeShazo. Podcasts of your favorite MPB Think Radio programs are available now. With any podcast app, you can search, subscribe, and never miss a second of MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Mississippi's 15 community community and junior colleges are often called the state's best-kept secret. To find out more about what the state's community and junior colleges offer, we are profiling all of them. Today, we look at Kapaya Lincoln Community College. Ronnie Nettles, president of Kapaya Lincoln, tells MPB's Sid Scott the school just recently turned 100 years old. We were actually in our 100th year of operation this okay. year. We started in 1915. As an agricultural high school, like many of the other community colleges, junior colleges in the state. From that, we evolved, I guess, for a few years until 1928, became a, a junior college at that time in the course of the 1980s, uh, became a community college. Uh, we have two other campuses, uh, one in Natchez, which was uh, established in 1972, and then also in Simpson County, which uh, is between Mendenhall and McGee, which was established in 2005. So... We have about 3,000 students in, in, in any given year, any semester. Uh, we'll serve probably 5,000 in a year from a, a seven-county 
uh, district that runs from Adams County and Natchez along the river all the way across to Simpson County. So Okay, so you're really doing like a horizontal band from the river it's over a, to it is. Alabama. It's a fairly um, you know, rural district, and, and throughout there we uh, have Adams County and Jefferson County, which uh, you know kind of moves up the river there, Franklin County, Capine, Lincoln, of course, Lawrence, and then Simpson. So it's a, it's a long, narrow stretch across there, but in many ways our students and the, the communities we serve are very, very similar. What's your student body like, uh, traditional versus non-traditional students? Yeah, uh, by and large, uh, like many of the other colleges in the state, we're different than, than you might find in other parts of the country where a large number of our students are still traditional students. Uh, they'll come out of high school and, and go to Colian. Uh, but on average, the average age is going to be 23 or 24. But, again, when you look at the national statistics, that's that's a little lower than you might find in other parts of the country. Uh, so we still have very much a track where our students will come out of high school, they'll stay with us for a couple of years, and then either they'll go into a workforce, uh, you know, if, if they went into some type of career and technical training, or they'll transfer to a university, which uh, for us represents about 75% of our students. So a lot of them do go on to a four-year. Right, and we've had a lot of success with getting them through the um, uh, co-in and into that system, and, and, and have, they've done quite well when they do uh, transfer into the four-year university. What about workforce development or training, anything like that? Yeah, I, you know, our area, our, our our area, our district is not uh, quite the industrial base that you might find in other parts of the state. Nevertheless, we have a, com- a complete division that spends a lot of time working with the companies and industries and that we have, uh, which would range from several over in the Natchez, Adams County area through Georgia Pacific and, and those type kind of timber-based companies, mm-hmm. a lot of health care training. Mm-hmm. So they stay very active. Our, our model is a little different than some other colleges in that many of our coordinators are also trainers. So they do things like safety training, um, CPR training, soft skills training, computer training. Uh, In other places, they may actually get someone from outside to come in and do that training. When you look at planning for the future, what your students are going to need, do you respond to the need? Do you, do you put programs in place and wait for people to come? How do you all approach that? Well, ideally what we're doing is listening to the communities that we serve and, and those industries that are trying to develop or, or try to expand in our district. So we spend a lot of time listening on where we think uh, the direction of those economic developers might be for that for our area. So we have a lot of that where mm-hmm. we try to develop programs around that that long term goal or plans. At the same time, that many many of the programs we have, especially in the career and technical division, are very traditional in nature. You know, we've got uh, uh, welding, for example, which right. is a big part of what we do around the Natchez area, but also in Wesson. A commercial truck driving is another one for us that's uh, unique in our area where we have some large distribution centers. So we we continue to do those types of things. We, uh, of course, have healthcare related, which would be everything from registered nursing to practical nursing, which um, would also for us include respiratory care and radiography. So some fairly unique things that don't just serve our district, but many of those students will reach out. You know, they get jobs in Jackson right. or Gulf Coast. Uh, in the case of Natchez, a lot of them are, are moving down towards Baton Rouge. You know, we try to take care of our folks, our hospitals, our our medical facilities, but many of them do spill into other parts of the state. As a form of higher education, still a pretty good bargain for people. It's a good way to get a lot of training for a little dollar. Absolutely, and I think that's one reason that it's so common for a student to come out of um, come out of high school or you know or looking to retrain because it's really a cost effective way to increase your skills. If someone wants to go into or a different career or change careers or maybe they've lost their job or for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. 
it is very cost effective to think that you can come in and get a one-year certificate or a two-year program and really elevate your situation uh, to a point where you can really change your life. That's certainly very important for a lot of our students and, and the people we serve. And then additionally, you think about those parents who have who have young people graduating from high school and you start comparing what the cost is for a community college like Colin and what it costs to send those kids to a university. It's really a cost-effective way. Ronnie Nettles is president of Kapile Lincoln Community College in Wesson, Mississippi. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. appreciate the opportunity. MPB's Sid Scott with Ronnie Nettles. Coming up after Mississippi Edition, it's Fix It 101, Everyday Tech, and Southern Remedy. And remember, if you want to catch the show outside the broadcast, just search for Mississippi Edition in your favorite podcasting app and listen whenever you like. It's easy. I'm Karen Brown. I hope you'll join us again tomorrow morning at 830 for the next Mississippi Edition, only on MPB Think Radio. Marketplace Tech for Wednesday.